Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. The episode you're about to listen to is a one-part solo episode. A pretty long solo episode, but I decided to keep it as one rather than making it into a series on the history of abortion law in America. This was this was originally a blog post. I have a blog now. By the way, I don't post super often, but it's on the website, and I put some random thoughts there once in a while. And I started writing a quick article for it about a recent abortion ban that's going to be heard by the um, Supreme Court next term in about a year. And as I was writing it, I realised what I was writing was just going to turn into this massive thing that was more like a chapter of a book than a blog post. And so I sort of took the outline of what I had and thought, well, let's just turn this into a solo episode. It's been a while uh, since I've done a big solo episode. People have requested more of them. So yeah, let's just let's just make this uh, a solo episode. And I did, and I'm reasonably happy with what I said in this, um, but also a bit a bit nervous about this one. I haven't gone into depth on abortion as an issue in political philosophy before on this podcast. And, you know, obviously, one, it's a very consequential issue that people have very strong, firmly held convictions on. And also, two, simply as a matter of just recognising your own perspectives and biases... It is just worth noting that this is an issue that doesn't affect me as a cisgendered man in anywhere near the same way as it will affect other people. And it's worth just being aware of that. So I always am a bit cautious um, talking about issues that primarily affect women or people of colour or so on as someone who's not part of those groups. But when it becomes a matter of public policy and law, um, I think we kind of have to sometimes. So I try to proceed with caution while also giving a clear account of what I think and why. Because even though I structure this as a history. Um, It's definitely a point of view history where I give my own um, views, and there's a lot of legal and political philosophy mixed into this. And one of the ways I have tried to sort of take into account the standpoint epistemology, sort of personal uh, perspective, Uh, issues, if you will, is I really don't say anything at all in this episode about deciding to get an abortion or not as a personal decision. You know, there's a lot of sort of moral philosophy and various issues you could think about with respect to that, um, whether it's right for an individual to make a decision one way or the other. I basically remain completely silent on that. I'm discussing this with an exclusive focus as questions in legal and political philosophy. So, concretely, 
I'm looking at the questions of are abortion bans constitutional and are they a justifiable use of state power within the overall framework of a liberal society. Those are the that's what I'm concerned with here. A final quick note um just on language is I worked quite heavily from the primary sources, which is in this case the various Supreme Court opinions that we have on this, and they just use the terms man and woman, and they assume that um, the abortion is an issue exclusively affecting women, and I kind of just followed along with that language convention when discussing them. So just a, a quick note to say I am aware that that's not quite right, and so this is an issue that could affect uh, trans men, for instance, or non-binary people, for instance. Um, so if you do have any feedback on either of those fronts, either there's something, you know, as my perspective as a man that I'm missing, that's making me miss something in my analysis, or if you think there's a way I could have made my language more inclusive in this episode, um, it just seemed a bit clunky to continually having to go back and say, and of course, um, it's not just women, it also affects trans men or non-binary people, or so on. And I didn't have a great way of reformulating that language, especially as it's what the primary sources use. Um, and I think it does matter that th th through this legal history, it's been assumed that abortion laws exclusively affect women, right? I think that has mattered for how we perceive the debate. Um, so I welcome feedback on either of those fronts, but I did just want to flag those two things. And in fact, more generally, this is a really, you know, tough issue. And if you do have thoughts, disagreements, another, another area in which you might call me out would be law. I'm not a lawyer, and I discuss legal precedent quite a bit in this episode. So I, there probably will be some stuff where it's like, yeah, how you phrase that particular bit isn't right. So I say all of that just to say I always enjoy feedback, so please give me feedback. Okay, this is a really long episode, so let's just get into it. I'll just quickly say, um, I put a lot of time and love into these big solo episodes. I do a lot of research for them. I love doing it, um, and it's a privilege even to do it. But if you do like them, consider supporting them. I have a Patreon, so if you think this, uh, long narrative history is worth a couple of bucks, it would be great to have them, and you can also support the show by sharing on social media. Um, oh, final, final note is there is a bit of background noise um, on this episode that I'm not super happy with, but I'm recording this. I'm actually back in America as I'm recording this. I'm in visiting New York for a couple of weeks. Um, so I am, I am actually not 
a British person living in the UK complaining about American politics for once. I am an American citizen living in New York talking about things that are happening to my country, at least for another week or so. So, there you go. But anyway, the, the point of that is um, I am in a tiny Manhattan apartment with paper-thin walls and 7th Avenue uh, just a couple of stories below me. So there was just no way. I, I took my microphone with me and so on, but there was just no way <laughs> I was doing this without any background noise getting in. Um, so I've tried to clean some of it up, but there's only so much you can do with that. So... You know, just imagine we're having a conversation in my apartment and you have the sounds and ambiance of the city that never sleeps going on around us and let it add to the immersion. How's, how's that for a positive top spin on some poor recording quality? Okay, so let's just get straight to it. This is Abortion in Law and Philosophy. There's a lot going on in American politics right now. I'm recording this just after the Senate vote to establish a commission into the Capitol Hill riot stroke coup attempt. Um, I did my usual thing of tweeting in a frustrated way about it to blow off some steam. And I think I definitely will have more on that, possibly with a guest, coming up shortly on the podcast. But on top of everything else, or perhaps Underneath it, sliding below the radar, the politics of abortion have been back in the news in the US. We've had two bills that might prove to be quite significant. The Texas so-called heartbeat bill, and even more consequentially, I think the uh, Mississippi bill that bans abortion after 15 weeks has just been granted cert by the Supreme Court. And I think that development is really, really significant. Now, in saying that, I was sort of thinking about how to open this episode, how to frame the question, and I sort of came to this realisation that I think for a lot of people, liberals, people on the left, anyone on the sort of centre to left side of the spectrum. Kind of with abortion in the States, I don't, I don't think people quite say it, well, some people say it, but I think a lot of people kind of feel a bit like the villagers in The Boy Who Cried Wolf parable. You know the one, right, where the boy says, oh, there's a wolf, there's a wolf, and everyone comes running out and he keeps doing it, and eventually when there is a wolf, there's there's no one there to help. Um, which has always baffled me a bit as to why crying wolf um, was a fun prank to pull. Um, you know, young kids are quite inventive with their pranks, and why this is what they'd go with, I'm not quite sure, but it's a parable that's stuck. Um, and 
like I say, I think people on the left have sort of had the feeling that they're, they're being called out again and again to defend against a wolf, in this case, um, the recriminalization of abortion in the States, that just doesn't come. We're for, there's forever some case making its way through the courts, um, and at every presidential election, we're continually told um, that... This, this is the one. This is the one where Roe v. Wade is on the line. And just like, you know, the villagers in the story, I think a lot of people have sort of got to the point where we think, well, the wolf isn't coming. Um, now, do I think these cases, particularly the Mississippi one, are crying wolf or wolf. I, I think they're wolf. Um, I'll, I'll, at the end, I'll give you my sort of soft prediction or, like, range of possibilities for what I think is going to happen. Um, but, yeah, I think this is a wolf this time. This is actually something that could have quite a big impact on abortion access in in the States. And so I want to sort of walk you through the legal history that got us to this point for, for a few reasons. There's a few things I'm trying to do in this episode. Um, the, the first is, I think, understanding the history is, and just like the structure of how the Supreme Court works, is pretty key to making a judgment as to, is this crying wolf or wolf? Um, so I want to sort of convince you that this is wolf, or at least there's quite likely a wolf there. There's, there's enough of a probability that there's a wolf there to be concerned um, by it. Um, secondly, to kind of just do a, like, 101 explainer of of that history so that people are equipped to have this discussion when the time for it comes, because I think it is coming. Um, I do find that I think reproductive freedom is something that the left cares deeply about, um, but we're, we're just, in the least patronising way possible, it might be good to do a refresher on this one, because I think it's it's an area we're not as versed in. I think, like, most people on the left could tell you quite a lot about, like, the distinction between a public option and Medicare for All, but I think probably quite few of them could, say, tell you what the difference between Roe and Casey is. You know, and that's not meant as an attack on anyone. I don't think it's because they don't think reproductive freedom is important. I think it's a specific instance of a general, um, I don't know how you'd say it, but like a, a, a general thing, <laughs> a general thing, right? Um, in which the left is just less interested in um, the courts and law. And the right are pretty invested in it. Like, they, I think people who are, like, activists on the right will definitely be able to tell you what the difference between Roe and Casey is. Whereas, other than sort of, like, 
knowing that Roe is a thing and knowing that, like, Citizens United is a thing. I just, I think the left is just less comfortable, less interested in that discourse. And I think that's just sort of a, a strategic mistake, because the courts, right, well, the courts forever and particularly, you know, over my lifetime even, but the courts are a real locus of political power in America. And part of this episode will be talking about why that is, whereas it perhaps isn't the case in most other comparable advanced democracies, which brings me on to my third point. Uh, the third thing I'm trying to do in this episode, which is going through that history raises some questions about how we should think about and live in a liberal society that I kind of wanted to talk about anyway. So I'm not quite sure what's the tail and what's the dog here. Um, am I talking about this particular legal history in order to get to some philosophy points I wanted to make or vice versa? I think they just sort of run together and I don't think there's a clean divide between law and politics and philosophy. It's more like a sort of messy, partially overlapping, partially diverging Venn diagram. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. Well, not the beginning, but sort of day zero for these types of arguments, which is Roe v. Wade. So... I've, I've actually been spending a bit of time with the Roe v. Wade jurisprudence, and I think it's really sort of worth returning to if, as I'm going to argue, in probably about a year from now, um, the abortion framework in the United States might quite radically changed. Because I think, I think because of the left's comparative disinterest in the courts and the legal structure in the United States, um, the rights narrative about Roe has sort of been allowed to stand and in some cases kind of almost permeate our thinking. I think often even people on the left have sort of gone along with the conservative characterization of Roe because it's just not a conversation that we're super comfortable with. So here's the, the, the conservative characterization. I mean, well, there's a sort of hardline conservative characterization, which is that this is what opened the door to an effective ongoing genocide against the unborn. But there's a sort of softer right-wing characterization, which is something like this. For basically forever, um, people have thought that abortion is wrong, uh, religion has taught that it's wrong and that life begins at conception. And this has just been the underlying assumed norm, just as, like, in the same way that, like, thou shalt not kill has been a part of almost all legal systems. And in fact, I think to many pro-lifers, they wouldn't really see a distinction between those two prohibitions. Um, then, you know, in the heyday of American liberalism in the 60s and 70s, um, some activists got it into their head that this could be undone with judicial activism, which it was, and there was no principled reason for it. Um, seven liberal justices just invented 
a right to privacy, which occurs nowhere in the Constitution, just fabricated it whole cloth, and delivered a decision which, whether you agree with it or not, has absolutely no basis in law. It is purely using law to instantiate personal morality. Um, so that's that, I would say, is probably the dominant narrative around Roe, and I think it's wrong on both counts. It's wrong on the count that this has been an underlying norm for all of human history, and it's also wrong about this idea of, like, just having invented the right to privacy. So, if you read Roe, and that's such a, like, lecturer phrase, isn't it? Well, if you read so-and-so, which, <laughs> what that often means is, I want to show off the fact that I have read so-and-so and take my word for it. Um, but I mean it genuinely in this case, actually. Go read Roe, like the original opinion. It's not that long. I think it's like a 20, 25-minute read for the main section. And... There's a lot of, like, legal citations in it, but the substantive argument is phrased in everyday language that any sensible person can follow. And there's parts of it that even rise to the level of quite well-written. <laughs> there's a little bit of language in there that I find quite archaic looking back, but I think you can forgive it that. So do... I'll, I'll read you some of it in this episode, but do actually read Roe if you haven't already. It's a pretty important document in American political history. So, if you read Roe, lecture a phrase, if you read Roe, do you not just love the utter bullshit I talk on this podcast sometimes? Um, if you read Roe, it, it really addresses both of those issues at length. So, going through the opinion... It starts with some sort of legal stuff about, like, who has standing and who doesn't, which I don't think really needs to concern us here. And then it does this long overview of how people have thought about abortion throughout history. Now, I'm not an expert on this, but from the sort of independent research that I've done... Um, it seems to me that the opinion gets its char overall characterization, at least, of abortion throughout history mostly right. Like, um, at least in its overall characterization, that it's a really mixed bag. So it starts with ancient times and peoples and the ancient Greeks and Romans and the ancient Near East. Like, it goes all the way back. And it sort of shows people have practiced abortions throughout all of human history. And the overall moral and legal sort of response to that has been pretty varied. Sometimes it was thought to be wrong, but tolerated. Sometimes it was thought to be basically fine. The opinion points out, which I believe is a good representation of history, that a lot of times people, what we would have thought of as an abortion, people historically didn't think of as an abortion. So through a lot of cultures in human history, 
they conceptualise the pregnancy as starting at the quickening, when you can first feel a child moving. That was the beginning of the pregnancy to them. And so they were just in a completely different medical framework when it came to interventions prior to that. They understood that they could be interventions prior to that, but they didn't see them as um, removing a fetus or removing a child. They saw them as, like, removing a menstrual blockage or restoring menstruation. Um, I find this, like, some bits of, like, medical history, I find it, like, really quite hard to wrap my head around. There's a really good episode on the history podcast The Dig, which covers this medical history, and I would just say go look at that, because I'm probably not going to give you a brilliant characterization of it. And, except to point out one thing, which is that for most of human history, this wasn't something men knew a lot about. In, like, the age before professional medicine, this was sort of, like, women's knowledge. Women have been practicing contraception and birth control for all of human history, but it's kind of something that, like, mothers taught their daughters, or, like, knowledge that healers passed on, and it's it wasn't something that men overtly concerned themselves with that much. Sort of, I guess, a bit today, like, how many men actually know how a tampon works? Like, that sort of thing, right? Um, and it's only sort of when this passed over into the male medical sphere that it became something that people sort of began to think about in a more sustained way and regulate. So, you know, it starts with this point in the opinion of the way that, that, that really, you know, in attitudes towards abortion historically have been all over the shop. It also makes the point that at the time of the American founding, in no state was abortion criminalised. That came much later. And again, for early American history, people were practising things that we would have thought of as abortions, but they wouldn't have. And again, I'll just recommend that episode on the dig to, to cover that history properly, because I, I, I sometimes would like how people from past ages thought about the human body and medicine. I kind of sometimes find it really hard to, like, get into their heads and, like, see what they were picturing, except for the fact that it was something radically different to how we do. Um, now, the first um, statutes against abortion in the States came a around the time of the American Civil War, mid-1800s, and a little bit after. And they were sort of part of, like, larger criminal bills. And then eventually it becomes something... Uh, the sort of general norm is criminalisation, uh, but there's a few states where it's legal or legal in a regulated way or something like that. And... That's sort of the world in which the justices who wrote Roe v. Wade are operating in. And I think it's really useful of them to lay out that history. And like I say, from everything I can tell, they actually did a pretty good job with the history. Like, they put their, they put their time into getting it right. And I think that's important 
because both as a sort of intuitive matter, but also as a legal one, that kind of matters. Because if you're doing something that's a radical reversal of the way people have done it forever, you're just, okay, now murder's legal, you know, that feels very different to reversing some laws that only really came into effect a hundred years ago, and maybe only substantively, you know, in terms of actual enforcement, came into effect 50 years ago. It just feels different. I think it also matters for um, legal terms, because in the practice of American law, what's often being disputed is varying, and you can hear a sort of sigh in my voice here, varying different methodologies for how one should interpret the Constitution. Do we interpret, and by the way, lawyers are going to be screaming in outrage as I characterise these, this is a very rough guide. Do you take like an original intent approach? What did the people writing this law intend it to do? Do you take a textualist approach where you say, no, we just look at the plain meaning of the law as it would have been understood back then and apply it in a sort of paint-by-numbers literalist way? Do you take a sort of living constitution approach where you say this changes and develops throughout time, which I think to conservatives can kind of just sound like postmodern woo-woo. Um, and what that history that I've just sketched does is it kind of makes those debates somewhat irrelevant or much less relevant, because had abortion been universally criminalised at the time of the founding, then there would be an argument of, look, if we're going with original intent, we know that this isn't what the Constitution was meant to do, because the people at the time saw no contradiction between what they were writing and the reality of abortion criminalization. Now, to the extent that you are an originalist, I'm not, but a lot of people are, that would be a reasonably compelling argument, and the debate would sort of come down to interpretive methodology. But it wasn't criminalised anywhere at the time of the founding, and we actually kind of don't really have much of a sense of, of what the, fa the founders did think anything about it. It wasn't something that they put in the Constitution. Um, so I think you can kind of just read the Constitution on its own terms, and just sort of say, what's this document telling us to do here? We don't have to sort of descend into this argument about methodology that so much of Supreme Court law seems to revolve around. And that brings you to the second point, which is the sort of idea in the narrative that, that they just invented this, this right to privacy which just, even as a word, is nowhere in the Constitution, um, and just sort of ran with it from there. Now, I think at this point, it's worth just taking a step back and kind of just asking, on its own terms, what is the Constitution, and how is it asking us to read it? Like, what? let's just say we're going with original intent. What is the original intent 
of how we are supposed to be using this document in an abstract sense. And the Constitution gives you fairly clear instructions on this. So the relevant bit here, particularly for this case, and the jurisprudence leading up to Roe and in Roe, is really built around this, is the Ninth Amendment. Big gold star, if you can tell me without looking it up, what the Ninth Amendment says, by the way. Feel free to exclude yourself from the somewhat patronising assertion I made earlier about people on the left not being as interested in, like, legally stuff. Like, yeah, if you know what the Ninth Amendment is, like, definitely, because it's probably the least discussed amendment, even the poor old Third Amendment <laughs> comes up in the discussion a bit more. Um, anyway, it's very short, it's one sentence, here's the Ninth Amendment. Quote, The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be constructed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. End quote. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be constructed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So what does that mean? Well, this, this is one that's seen as being... A lot of people think this is a really paradoxical or uninterpretable amendment, that this is like a really baffling aside in the Constitution, and it's one, incidentally, that conservatives hate. Um... Conservatives really do not like this, although they also use it. Um, so famously, uh, Robert Bork, um, a justice who we will return to in this episode, um, described the Ninth Amendment as an ink blot. And you know, he was asked, "How how do you interpret the Ninth Amendment?" He said, "I, I, I interpret it like I would an ink blot." Like, it's just something that's on the page that I don't understand. And essentially, I, I ignore it, is what he's saying there. Which does sort of cut against this sort of supposed reverence for the Constitution to just openly say, yeah, I ignore this bit of it. But okay, but I, I think the Ninth Amendment is completely straightforward in what it's telling you, and highly congruent with the way the rest of the Constitution is written. Um, it's saying there are unenumerated rights. In so many words, it's saying... No, just literally, it's saying the fact that the Constitution names certain rights does not mean that that list is exhaustive. Or to put it a different way, the Constitution guarantees rights that it doesn't directly name. The Constitution guarantees rights that it doesn't directly name. Well, I mean, hang on, doesn't that sound a bit spooky and woo-woo and, like, postmodern and, like, interpretive and anything goes? I, I thought this was... Uh, supposed to be a document of, like, classic liberal libertarian rationality with clearly defined rules that um, we can apply in a logical step-by-step -step case without judgment. This, this sounds like some um, cultural relativist nonsense. Um, I don't think it's either extreme, um, and I think it makes sense when you look at how the Constitution is written, the Constitution will often just sort of, like, point you in a direction 
of something. And it'll often be quite explicit that what it's saying is not comprehensive. So the bit that's going to become really relevant for this case is just a short phrase in the 14th Amendment, life, liberty, and property. Right? Roe... Roe kind of, the underlying logic of Roe is essentially the Ninth Amendment plus the Fourteenth forecloses the ability of the states to uh, criminalise abortion. That's Roe in a nutshell. But just think about that phrase for a second. Life, liberty, property. Now, that's a fairly classic uh, proto-liberal formulation, right? Um, it's in Locke. There's something a bit like it in the Declaration of Independence with property switched out for pursuit of happiness. But it's just, I don't think, it's just sort of a recurring phrase in the political thought of that era, right? Um, and then doesn't elaborate at all. Just life, liberty, property. And there's a context to that, which we'll get to, but... Okay, that sort of sounds good, that sounds sensible, but all of those words have a pretty broad range of meanings, and the Constitution simply doesn't go on to say, well, now listen, by property, we mean X, Y, and Z. It just sort of says, these are the rights. Now, like I said earlier, liberals aren't the only ones to sort of take that as a starting point and then think, in terms of, you know, what the everyday meaning of these words would have been to the people who wrote them, what does that starting point logically imply? So here's something conservatives do with that formulation, is they say, okay, if we've got liberty and we've got property, uh, not, you know, can't be infringed with except subject to due process or whatever, right? It seems like if you've got those two, you've also got contract. It seems really hard if people are guaranteed their property and that they're guaranteed their freedom to use that property. It seems like the, the, the natural conclusion to that is people have the right to form contracts with one another um, about the use of that property. That actually doesn't strike me as a crazy argument, right? Now, the, the, the right to contract is nowhere given in the Constitution. But it just seems to sort of fall out of that formulation. Like, it seems weird to think that you could have life, liberty, property, and not contract. That kind of seems like a contradiction, almost. And that is um, a bit of, a very simplified bit, but a bit of jurisprudence that underlies a, a, a long period of um, conservative um, sort of uses of the Constitution known as the Lochner era, which was sort of this um, deregulated, roaring 20s, yes, we can have monopolies um, sort of era on the court, which was very, very hostile to you know, government intervention in markets and so on, um, that comes out of that, that, sort of, that sort of read. And I don't, I don't actually think it's wrong. I mean, there are specific 
things in the Loch Ness era, don't get me wrong, that you can object to. So, like, okay, people have a right to contract. At what point could that be curtailed? At what point do we want to sort of examine, like, the role of consent in contracting? At what point might there be an overriding state interest? I don't, I don't think it's like, you know, that once we've said, okay, yeah, contract, that makes sense. I don't think that's like the one ring to rule them all. So, you know, you'll get Loch Ness era decisions like, well, because contract... A factory can totally employ an eight-year-old for 16-hour days to clean chimneys where there's, like, a 50% chance they'll die. Yeah, because he contracted to do it. So, like anything, that sort of legal principle, <laughs> you, you know, you've got to hold it in your head together with other ones. But I think the idea that the Constitution would be, let's just say, sympathetic to the idea of contract, even though it, it never mentions it. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? At least by itself. And, the, and the, 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 there's times where the Constitution explicitly tells you that it is giving you a non-comprehensive list of things. So take, for example, the um, impeachment clause. The impeachment clause says, you know, you can impeach and vote to remove a president for bribery, treason, and other high crimes and misdemeanours. So I would interpret that, and I think the legal consensus view on how to interpret that would be there is this general category of offences that we're calling high crimes and misdemeanours, of which uh, bribery and treason are two, but they're not, they're not the only two. That's just like what came, that's just what came to mind when we were writing this, dude. Like, figure it out. <laughs> you want us to solve all your problems for you? This is the thing. You know, it's like this and this, and you, you can work out the rest. Go, do it. Right? Again and again, you can find stuff like that in the Constitution, which is quite different from how a lot of modern, frankly, constitutions are written, like the Constitution of France and Germany, it will tell you, you know, this is our conceptual definition of these terms, this is what it means in application, here are the provisos and the quid pro quos, and you, you really can read them as an American originalist would sort of want to insist. We read the American Constitution, but the American Constitution just isn't like that. It uses terms of art, it uses big ideas, it refuses to, to define those things, and it explicitly gives you non-comprehensive lists multiple times. And I think there's sort of advantages and disadvantages to, to doing it both ways. Um, I think... You know, there, there obviously is inherent liabilities in the idea that there's just a lot of judgment that, that goes into applying this. Like, it's not self-applying. Like, you, you, you need to think about it a bit, right? There's obvious liabilities there. Um, but th there's also obvious benefits. You, it, it can adapt to changing circumstances. There's a bit of... It's not brittle. There's a bit of give, a bit of flex to the thing. Um, and also, I think it sort of democratises it. Because, like, if you have a constitution that really, like, lays it out in detail, that's necessarily going to be quite a technical document. 
and its interpretation and application will basically be off-limits to people who aren't trained specialists. Whereas with the American Constitution, anybody can read it and have a sense about what this means, right? And I think there's something quite attractive in that. Like I've always said, politics isn't the dis- the, the contestation between different value systems within an agreed framework. The framework itself is part of that contestation. It is, you know, when we appeal to overarching principles like free speech and the First Amendment or democratic process or what have you, those appeals are an attempt to sort of project a consensus, and that consensus might be partially successful, it might fail partially, it might fail totally, it will shift and change over time, Um, but it'll never be universal, and it'll never be stable or permanent, and statements about the overarching structure within which political contestation takes place seek to transcend that structure but are in fact an artifact of it. And given that reality, this is not at all how the American founders would have justified it, by the way, these are just my thoughts, given that reality of the inevitable contestation of the overarching structure, isn't it quite nice, isn't it quite useful that that contestation should occur in the plain light of day, where everyone can see and follow and understand the various claims that are being made, and can have opinions on it themselves, um, and can reach to a sort of foundational document that anybody can understand and, and make claims for themselves about what the ultimate structure should be. I don't know, like, that that sort of seems right to me, somehow. Although I do acknowledge that there's definite liabilities to it as well. So, anyway, that's a sort of long preamble that I think gives you um, the context in which Roe is occurring and the context to understand what they're doing when they say right to privacy. So the context is, to recap, um, this isn't a question of original intent, because abortion wasn't criminalised at the founding. Um, It's laws that have been passed more recently. Now, do those laws violate a right that the Constitution guarantees? That's the question. Do, you know, does the total criminalization of abortion violate a right given by the Constitution, (laughs) understanding the Constitution grants rights that it doesn't directly name? Well, how do you answer that question? You answer it by sort of looking at what the Constitution does give you, and just as we saw that contract kind of seems to fall out of liberty and property, is there sort of a starting point that would seem to get you there? And I I think 
you know, their logic, and I, I, so just to give my own opinion away, I think Roe was correctly decided. I, I don't buy that, like, a lot of, a lot of liberals will say, you know, I agree, um, with abortion being legal, but that should be done by legislators, not the courts. And while I like the outcome, it was some very sloppy, very sloppy legal legal reading. They just invented this 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 thing. You know, I like the outcome, but it wasn't good law. Um, I, 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 you know, to the extent I know anything about this, but why isn't this again? Like I said, the beauty of the American Constitution is that we get to have opinions on it, right? Without being a specially trained lawyer. Um, I think Roe was, as a matter of law, not of outcome, I think Roe was correctly decided. So here's why. Um, It's the same amendment, in fact, um, the 14th, um, and I'll just read you it. Um, Well, there's a few sections to the 14th, but it's the first one that's relevant for us here. Um, Quote, All persons born or naturalised, sorry, interjection, uh, born or naturalised is going to do some work in this opinion too. I think you can probably guess where that's going. But anyway, quote, All persons born or naturalised in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of the citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. End quote. Um... So again, just with all the context I said about like how you read the Constitution, not a lot of detail there, but I think the normative thrust of it is pretty clear. One note at the beginning, it says no state. Um, other amendments direct themselves specifically at the federal government, and sometimes people have argued, well, does that mean that states can do it? If, you know, the First Amendment says Congress can make no law, does that mean, you know, respecting religion and speech, does that mean that, say, Missouri can make a law restricting religion and speech? Now, over time, it's generally been held that it's incorporated, like, like it covers all forms of government. Um, There's people who disagree. I think Clarence Thomas disagrees with that, that the First Amendment applies to the states. Um, But I think that's sort of one of those things that's evolved over time. But the 14th is pretty clear. This is talking about states. Um, So the idea of let's just, you know, let individual states make their own abortion law, if the 14th Amendment applies to abortion, is clearly, clearly ruled out. Um, Now... There's quite a bit of jurisprudence leading up to Roe, which, in that life, liberty, and property formulation, finds a light to privacy. Kind of like if you have, if you, 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 you're entitled to your life, you're entitled to freedom, it sort of, just as like contract sort of falls out of property, it seems like privacy sort of falls out of life and liberty. Now, a note on privacy, the, the, the one slight wrinkle I have with Roe is I think the word privacy is probably not meaning the same thing 
in the heads of the people who wrote it as it would for us today, which is one of the reasons that finding a right to privacy can sound a little bit weird. Because um, I think for us, it's privacy's like you, you don't have like a peeping Tom at your window or like the FBI surveilling your phone calls or something like that, right? I think if you look at the cases where it has been used, it's been used to strike down laws that banned contraception. They said, no, no, you can't stop people using contraception. They have a right to privacy based on a substantive due process reading of the 14th Amendment. It's been used with various issues relating to uh, marriage and religion and stuff like that. Um, so it's, it's a bit more like the public-private divide sense of privacy than more like a not-being-spied-on sense of privacy. It's like, in your own life, in your own home, in your own family, you can make your own decisions free of any sort of external force coming in to, like, tell you you can't do otherwise. So, with, with that in mind, the question sort of becomes, does the 14th Amendment seem to be implying something like the public-private divide? I mean, it's basically a restatement of it, Right? Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. That, that seems like just a reformulation of a sort of classically liberal um, public-private divide, right? And then the question would be, if the 14th Amendment does establish privacy in that sort of traditionally liberal sense, does that right to privacy include um, the right to seek an abortion? And it seems like both of those are very obvious steps to take. Um, and this is where, like, I think the idea that there is a certain amount of interpretation going on in reading the Constitution, a certain amount of judgment that has to be used, sounds scary because it sounds like it's a free-for-all. No, there's things that very obviously come out of this text, and things that would obviously be wild misreadings of it, right? Um, so that, that's, that is the logic of Roe, and this, I'll read you a bit from the decision, this is how... Um, uh, the, the opinion itself characterises it, quote, This right of privacy, whether it be founded in the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty and restrictions upon state action as we feel it is, or the district court determination in the 9th Amendment's reservation of rights to the people, is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. The detriment that the state would impose upon the pregnant woman by denying this choice is altogether apparent. Specific and direct harm, medically diagnosable even in early pregnancy, may be involved. Maternity or additional offspring may force upon the woman a distressful life and future. Psychological harm may be imminent. Mental and physical health may be taxed by childcare. 
There is also the distress for all concerned associated with the unwanted child. And there is the problem of bringing a child into a family that is already unable, psychologically and otherwise, to care for it. In other cases, as in this one, the the additional difficulties and continuing stigma of unwed motherhood may be involved. All of these are factors that the woman and her her responsible physician necessarily will consider in consultation, end quote. And as an an aside, you know, that perennial phrase in American politics, it's a choice between a woman and her doctor, um, which I find a bit annoying. Now, it's a choice a woman makes, like, a woman might make advised by a doctor, certainly, but that's where that comes from. It comes from Roe. Roe uses this woman and her physician sort of language, and that sort of gets picked up to, like, it's a choice between a woman and her doctor sort of language, which, that's maybe one bit of the opinion I'm not a super fan of. Um, But that's how Roe essentially... um, summarises the argument that um, I've been making here. And what it does there is Roe is an opinion grounded in the real world, and it sort of lays out the potential costs of um, of um, of being forced to carry a child, which, as it just detailed, may be really, really, really substantive indeed. And the sort of question is, can the state, you know, force those costs upon a woman within the parameters that are laid out in the Constitution? And Roe's answer is obviously not, right? Um, Another way of thinking about it is, like, not just does it follow from this little bit of text, but is this congruent with the general sort of framework that the Constitution is giving us and how we apply it in other cases. So, like, all the stuff I've covered um, so far, you know, including, like, the contract stuff, uh, including free speech, free religion, including the... We, you, you could mention the fairly substantive rights guaranteed to criminal defendants in amendments uh, four through six, um, including the 14th that we've gone over. What, how do you summarise all of this? It's a sort of classically liberal, small-l libertarian worldview that wants fairly clear protections around individuals and fairly clear limits on state power, right? That's sort of what it's doing. And if you think about, like, some of the other things this document does and just try to map them over to, like, does this apply to whether or not the state can compel a woman to carry a child to term... Um, I would argue the burden of proof is on the other side. The other side has to argue why this one case is such an exemption that the ordinary rules don't apply. So just to, like, start obviously, what is the 14th Amendment? Why is it there? It's an anti-slavery amendment, right? Um, now, there are many factors 
involved in slavery, of which forced labour is only one, and the case of slavery and compelled childbirth are not directly analogous, but the question would be, um, can the state compel labour from you? Can it force you to undertake, in both cases, potentially difficult and dangerous work? Um, and the answer is surely no. Or if it is, there has to be a very, very strong argument for, like, an overriding state interest, right? You know, can it, it details all of the sort of difficulties and challenges, this opinion that, that may come with, with childbirth. Can the state force you to, to do that? And in every other domain, we'd say no. So what's the argument that this domain is the exemption? And really, for, like, whatever reason, like, the state can't compel forced labour, even for a good reason, even if it felt, well, no, this would improve society overall, there's still that protection around the individual. I think another amendment... I haven't heard this argument made before. I bet you someone has, but I just thought of this independently that I think you might bring in here is the Eighth Amendment, the prohibition on, quote, cruel and unusual punishment, which I think I would read and most people would read as a prohibition on torture. Um, childbirth is extraordinarily painful. Um, now, if people sort of choose to do that, that, that can be a real positive. Like, I think for a lot of people, giving birth was the most important moment in their lives. Um, but this is just where, like, consent does so much work for a liberal worldview, right? Like, you get asked um, questions like, well, if we allow people to get married to people of their gender, what's to stop them marrying children or toasters or something? And the question, the, the clear limiting principle for, like, why you can marry an adult of the same sex and not a child is consent. Like, consent does a huge amount of work, and correctly so. And I think it's the same with physical pain. Like, if you are, like, working out or, like, you know, pumping weights to the... You know, you really do... Where you, where you burn yourself to exhaustion and, you know, you wake up, like, aching all over the next day. Like, you have one of those sessions. That is a really high amount of physical pain that with consent, I want to work out, want to bulk up, get ripped. You can tell I'm totally into this culture, right? Um, <laughs> the lingo I use. Um, that can be a real positive. It can be an empowering thing for people if it's consensual, if it's something, no, I want to work out, I enjoy it. Bring the pain, bring the burn, right? If you simulated an equivalent amount of pain with, like, electric shocks or something without someone's consent, that would straightforwardly be torture, right? And hence unconstitutional. And whether or not you had a good reason for it wouldn't really matter. Torture is torture. Like, you can maybe get to some real edge cases where it's like, well, what if, like, there was, you know, a 24-ticking-clock-style scenario where a nuclear bomb was going to go off... Uh, over Manhattan, 
and you have to torture this one guy. All those scenarios prove to me is that there will be a breaking point for any norm. Like, at some point, consequentialism will just override it. But that doesn't mean the norm is worthless. Like, I would say, like, can you torture a person to save one life? I would probably bite the bullet on that and say no. Like, as a matter of law, no, you can't. It's in the Eighth Amendment. And um, as a matter of sort of, like, moral philosophy, what's ultimately right? Also, no, you can't. Because what would the world look like if we institutionalised torture every time authorities thought that a life might be at risk? I think in the general case, we'd clearly be living in a much worse world. So that's the sort of, you know, legal and moral logic that underlies the Constitution, right? Is that, no, like, if this thing, if forcing someone to do something, if the thing you're forcing someone to do is incredibly painful and might be very psychologically difficult for them... Um, then you can't force them to do it. And even, like, an interest of, like, but there's another life on the line isn't overriding in that case, I think, within the framework that the American Constitution sets up. Like, the state interest has to be higher than that. Um, and that's ceding the side of personhood on the abortion debate, um, which I don't think we should... So just to recap, I don't think it's, it's consistent with the way we interpret the Constitution as a small-l liberal libertarian document that guarantees quite strong rights for individuals and quite hard restrictions on state power. Um, it's just not coherent with how we view the rest of the document. What about personhood? Um, Roe does take this up. Um, and I think their reasoning, again, completely sound on this one. They just punt. Um, they do this huge, long survey of, like, here's what these people think about personhood, and here's what these people think. And then they ask, does the Constitution offer us a definition of personhood? And they review every time the Constitution uses the word. And, of course, because it's the Constitution, at no point does it offer a definition, because, as we know now, the Constitution doesn't do such silly things as tell you what the words it's using mean. Come on, dude. Um, and the only time that it even hints at whether personhood might cover the unborn, it seems to go the other way. So you remember earlier... How does the 14th Amendment define uh, citizenship? Quote, all persons born, big flashing lights there, or naturalised in the United States. Um, so it seems to be saying that the, to, to be protected by rights guaranteed by the Constitution, you need to be a citizen. To be a citizen you need to be born or naturalised in the United States. Now, this may very well be one of those slip of pens determining the course of history type things. I don't think the people who wrote that amendment really imagined 
it playing a specific role in the pro-life, pro-choice debate. Nonetheless, that is what it says. Um, I think that's probably one of the weaker arguments, and uh, Roe sort of acknowledges it as much, in that they sort of say, that doesn't really settle it either way, but to the extent that we ever get any hint about what the Constitution says about this, it is that. It is that just little throwaway line there. Um, So anyway, after looking at the Constitution, all of these different things, um, the opinion just basically goes, well, we don't bloody know either. Um, Quote, When those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy, and theology are unable to arrive at any consensus... The judiciary, at this point in the development of man's knowledge, is not in a position to speculate as to the answer. End quote. That seems perfectly sensible to me. Like, when life begins is a big philosophic, religious, scientific debate about which there is no consensus. It seems reasonable for the law not to try and impose one. From, from like, you know, I can sort of break the personhood question down a bit from a philosophy point of view, but, like, I think if you were a judge making a legal decision, that approach of just saying we don't know is completely fine. Now, I realise that answer will not be very compelling to a committed pro-lifer. Um, I think they would sort of say, you you can't just dodge the question. That is the question. And you have to come down on it on one side or another. Is it a life or isn't it? Is a fetus a life or isn't it? Because if it is, then, you know, you can't just murder a child. And if it isn't, then, yeah, sure, I guess pro-choice follows, or pro-choice at least up until the point where we do consider it life, which historically has been, you know, the quickening, the first movements. Um, I I don't think that's right. Um, I don't think that's the, the right way to frame it, or the conclusion that follows from uh, life begins at conception definition of personhood. Um, so this is just my own views here, and again... These are views about law and about what the state can impose upon people, not about the innate morality of a particular decision. I'm not committing myself certainly to the view that abortion is like the right thing to do in all circumstances because that would lead to the extinction of the human race, right? Um, And this is a separation that always gets lost and that liberals always want to make, and it applies to basically everything we're arguing for. Like, free speech does not mean you like the speech, right? Um, Free religion does not mean you agree with the religion, so on and so forth. And there are costs to liberalism. And we should be upfront and straightforward about what those costs are. Free speech means not only are there going to be people who disagree with you, but they're they're not going to always do it in a polite or respectful way. Free speech means there will be people out there who despise you, who hate you, who hate your identity, 
who hate what you stand for. And that is a pretty big cost. It is a cost that free speech asks us to bear. And it is a cost, ultimately, that is worth paying. But it's a cost, you know? Allowing a very high degree of personal autonomy is going to lead to people making bad decisions. Now, I'm not saying abortion is always a bad decision or that it's always a good one. I'm just saying that's not the level of debate that I'm engaging in here. I think the personhood question will be pretty impactful at the level of the individual. And I'm just, I'm going to follow um, Roe v. Wade and just remain agnostic on this one throughout this episode. But yeah, to the extent, does personhood begin at conception? Is it sometime after than that? In terms of the individual level of decision-making, when you are, or maybe you and your partner are, or something like that, but like when you are in the position of deciding whether to carry a pregnancy to term, yeah, of course what you decide about that will be pretty impactful on your decision, or at least is potentially pretty impactful. Um... But I think the legal and political argument doesn't stand or fall on it. I think the idea that, well, if it's a life, then, then it's murder and has to be um, prohibited, I don't think follows. I don't think it follows from sort of the fundamental values of liberalism. And I don't think is congruent with other aspects of how we think about law and politics and government. So I'm going to sort of sketch out some arguments here, which I think are pretty much just parallel arguments to what Roe makes, but in my own words. Um, you know, I think you can ask, like you say, as, as Roe asks, does this seem to follow from the relevant sections of the Constitution, and is this congruent with how we think about what the Constitution is telling us generally? You know, if I were to sort of think about my fundamental values, it would be some sort of species of progressive liberalism, right? Um, I'm not going to, I'm just going to sort of run through what that is I'm not going to make the argument for liberalism in general. I've done that in other episodes. Um, I'm just going to argue what I think follows from it. So the first thing I want to say is I think the framing is off because the framing of that argument, if it's a life, you have to protect it, um, views the question entirely through the, the lens of the let's use their language, the unborn child, right? It doesn't view it from the lens of the mother. So I don't think the question is, you know, is it a life? If so, it has to be protected. There's the question of, is it a life? And let's just, for the purposes of this argument, grant the pro-life position on personhood. Because I think the legal and political argument stands irrespective of that. So I don't think we should grant the pro-life position on personhood. 
Um, I think this is a really hard question, but the idea that from conception, that seems like there's a bit of work to do, <laughs> to put it mildly, that's needed to justify that position. But let's just grant it um, that, you know, life begins at conception. Let's grant that, and I'll assume that to be true for the, for the rest of this argument, even though I don't think it is. Right. The question then isn't, you know, well, obviously it has to be protected. The question becomes, and this is a question we ask all the time in all sorts of other domains of life, how far can collective authority or the, the powers of the state um, compel people to preserve life? So, the, the, I think the very heart of liberalism is the idea that there are sort of individual goods and that there are social goods. You know, Millen on Liberty says this is like the, the question of political uh, uh, philosophy. And I think that's fairly common sense. You know, overall, we want a society with high welfare. We want people to be taken care of. Um, we want all sorts of forms of social cooperation. And to do that restrictions will have to be placed on individuals. Their participation in the maintenance of that social project will, to some degree, have to be compelled, right? At the same time, we want autonomy. We want people... This is the liberal creed. This is, you know, the liberal, <laughs> you know, building block, right? We want people to have autonomy. We want people to be able to make their own choices. We want them to be self-determining agents. And those two impulses will sometimes conflict, right? Um, and so the basic project of a liberal society is to get as much of the social goods as you can while still maintaining autonomy in a meaningful sense. And one way you might think about the different forms of liberalism is um, a different, you know, different attempts of where you draw that line. How, how, how much do you prioritise the individual or society? Or perhaps at a more philosophic level, a number of attempts to justify <laughs> the drawing of that line, right? Um, I think that should all be pretty common sense. Now, one sort of application of that or one, like, specific and very consequential, like, section of that frontier is how far can a central authority, you know, the state, compel people to participate in actions for the sake of preserving the lives of others? Um, and when you look at it that way, you know, assume personhood. How far can you compel someone to take actions necessary to preserve life. Abortion is a wild outlier to how we normally think about that question because I think how we normally think about it would be something like undue burden. Like, that's a bit of a vague phrase, and it's, I'm going to come back to how it's a vague phrase in a different context, but it would be like... You can ask stuff of people. I think 
you know, you could maybe compel something like a good Samaritan law where you really do, you know, you, you, you are obligated to run into the shallow pond to save the drowning child. But we actually generally don't go much past that point. I think even some people would be queasy with the idea that there is a legal obligation to go into the pond. Um, is there a legal obligation to donate a kidney? Could the state compel that? Let's just, let's just take some obvious cases. Um, 30,000 people in America die a year in car accidents. How do we sort of think about how the state could, you know, what our obligations are and how far could the state compel us for the goal of preserving life? Well, pretty minimally, honestly, right? Like, the state could just say, you can't kill people, therefore you can't drive a car, go ride around on the backs of animals or something. You know, no, we just sort of say, well, there's speed limits, you have to have a license, you can't drive drunk. Sort of, again, this sort of undue burden idea. Like, you can't really limit the choices people make with their lives. You can maybe sort of put in some guardrails so, like, the most dangerous behaviours are prohibited. Um, or, again, to, to take the, the drowning child case, I mean, that's used in service of the idea that then you have an obligation to donate the equivalent amount of money to charity. Um, so does that mean the state then has authority to tax that equivalent amount of money? Even there, you know, we're, we're a bit uneasy, right? Like, I think we would sort of say, again, undue burden... Like, the state can tax, but not, like, to the point where it will meaningfully constrict your life choices, which, incidentally, is one argument for a sort of progressive taxation system, in that if you have 10 million in the, the bank and I take 1 million of it, your ability to decide what you want to do with your life is really not diminished in any meaningful way. Whereas, if someone is, like, just on the verge, paycheck to paycheck, 10% of their income may well be something that makes a difference to their ability to autonomously decide life choices, right? So I would sort of say to that, yeah, as part of the state's sort of obligation to preserve life, we should be paying for medical care, we should be, to the extent that it's effective, spending on things like foreign aid, um... All sorts of things, right? But in order to sort of get those resources, we do, we do have to be a bit careful about how we do it. We want to sort of skim from the top, essentially. We want to take money from, like, where it's not going to constrain autonomy. This is sort of like the difference, I think, between how liberals and libertarians would see property rights in this case. In that I don't think it's an awful evil violation to, like have an income tax or something, but I do think people controlling their own resources, having a set of objects that they have exclusive control over, is furthering of autonomy. Um, and, yeah, if you're going to start taking them away from people, you do want to be careful, right? You do want to be careful how you do that. 
again, I don't think anything that I'm saying is, like, crazy or wild or left-wing radical. If anything, I'm being sort of kind of a normie centrist <laughs> on this one and how I, I'm phrasing it, right? Now, to be honest, I will probably go further than most liberals will feel comfortable with in compelling actions for the sake of saving life. It's the consequentialist enemy. So let's take, I think, what might be a boundary case. Could the state compel you to donate blood? Let's just say, for the sake of argument, I have no idea if this is correct or not, but let's just say we can be very confident that this will save lives, that there's any number of people who die on operating tables because of blood shortages. Um, and let's just say that other schemes for solving that shortage have failed, right? Like, for some reason, we haven't been able to, like, just buy it off people or something like that, right? Um... Could the state mandate that? I'm tempted to say yes. I think a lot of a lot of people, a lot of liberals, would really wince at that. It's one thing they might say to take a little bit extra from the millionaires, but that's like a violation of bodily autonomy. I'm, that feels a bit different to me. I'm not immune to that argument, by the way. That, like you might want to draw a hard line around the body. Um, it just seems to me in that case that the cost-benefit at least potentially could be quite strong. Like, giving blood is half an hour every time a year, or twice a year or something. It's pretty painless. I've done it a few times now. Like, and I'm personally not a huge fan of needles or anything. Like, the, the level of, like, you know, what you're putting on the individual is pretty low there. So, if you, if that was going to save lives, I can sort of see the argument for that. But that, to me, would be, like, my boundary case. In that, while I can be talked into mandatory blood donations, I can completely understand why people would feel uneasy with it, right? And so that's, like, in terms of, like, saving life, something like mandatory blood donations, that would be sort of my frontier of, like, how far the state can compel action. Or maybe something like Good Samaritan Laws, where you really have to go into that pond. Because, again, you get your shoes wet or something. I, but I wouldn't mandate having to give a kidney. I wouldn't mandate having to run into a burning building. But that, that is too far, right? Um, well, the level of constraint involved in compelling people to carry pregnancies to term and give birth... That's way out, way out past the boundary of, like, giving blood or paying a higher marginal tax rate or having to go into the shallow pond. That that level of constraint is, it's just, like, off the map past that boundary. It's not like, oh, there's the boundary, then there's this case. There's, like, terrain and mountains and rivers and valleys, and then there's the abortion case, right? The constraint is incredibly heavy. <laughs> like, I mean, just remember the sort of list of, um, 
sort of potential harms that the, the Roe opinion ran through. In what other context would we forcibly impose those harms on someone and accept them being imposed on us, even in order to preserve life? Maybe something like conscription is the best I can do there. But I'm not sure how I feel about conscription, honestly. That's sort of like a matter of the survival of the society itself. I'm not sure that maps. And so I just don't see it following from the basic principles of a liberal society that the state can exercise this degree of power. And I don't think it's congruent, even assuming a life begins at conception, you know, conception, conception used in that sentence to mean in two different ways. A life begins at conception, conception of personhood. Even granting that, I don't think it follows, and I don't think it's congruent with how we think about what the state can compel us to do to preserve life in any other, in any other domain. There's, um, there's a really famous example in the philosophy literature on this, which is like the, the violinist on life support. Um, why a violinist, I don't know, but anyway, where a very talented violinist um, gets in some sort of accident, and it turns out you are the only person because of some rare blood type or something that can save him. But to save him, you'll have to, like, be hooked up to his body, like exchanging fluids for nine months. It will have all sorts of consequences for your health, and it can potentially be very, very painful for you. It will, you know, have big impacts for your bodily autonomy, it'll have big impacts for your overall life autonomy to make choices. Um, is that the right thing to do for you to volunteer that? Well... Yeah, maybe, probably, possibly. Can the state force you to do that? Surely not, right? Like, yeah, you know, can the state force you to donate a kidney? I think all of us would view the idea of the state forcing you to donate a kidney, even to preserve life, as something out of a utilitarian dystopia. Right? When people object to utilitarianism, it's because they're, they're scared stuff like that is going to happen if we're, if we're put in power. Right? But so why don't we think about abortion that way? Even those of us who are, like, pro-choice, we kind of, like, put it in a different category in our heads. I'm going to return to that idea. What's the, what's the pro-life counterexample to the violinist case? They'd say... Well, as always, when people are confronted with an analogy that they don't like, they will draw a distinction between the, the applied case and the analogy. And as always, the distinction is real, but I don't think really does any work. They'll say, well, you know, in the case of the violinist, you didn't do anything to cause him to be in that condition, therefore you don't have any obligation to him. Whereas, if you're pregnant, um, then you chose to engage in an activity, sex, that could have led to, that could lead to life, and now that it has, 
you have a much stronger obligation towards it. Now, that argument may or may not work in terms of individual decision-making. I think even there it's a bit spotty. Um, it definitely doesn't work at the level of law. Like, all of us, all the time, are engaged in activities that can lead to the deaths of others. Driving, <laughs> again, as an example, right? If you drive, you're doing something that has a low-level probability of killing someone else. All the frickin' time, when I turn my gas oven on, it might, like, explode or something and take out other people in the apartment building. Um, we don't react the same way to those cases. Take driving as an example. If you want to say, like, like what, what, what's, what do we do in response to that? We put some regulations in place. Right? Um, so I think the most you could maybe do is start regulating sex in some way and think about how counterintuitive what I'm proposing is. Think about how wrong this would feel to most people. Let's say, and this is a bit of a sick example and I'm not actually advocating for this, but let's say because having sex can um, potentially lead to life, um, we are going to mandate condom use or barrier protection. And let's make this fall exclusively on men. Let's, let's make having unprotected sex something a bit like drunk driving. Like... There is, you know, we will enforce this and we will, like, put you in prison for a few years, you know? Like, we're, we're actually going to be serious about this. And let's say if you want to have unprotected sex, you, like, have to sign, like, some sort of preemptive prenup or something. Like, you have to commit in advance to supporting a child. You could do that. Like, it's logically possible. Um... But, I mean, my God, think about what the enforcement of that would look like. Like, would you do spot checks on people? If a case came to court and, like, a woman reported a man for not wearing a condom? Like, you'd probably have to do away with the reasonable doubt standard. You'd probably just have to adjudicate that on... on, um... sort of, like, just what's more likely, a burden of evidence standard. Would you want the state to be doing that? That seems really iffy to me, right? But you could do that. Like, if the concern was that abortion is the loss of life, and we want to get that as low as possible, I think something like having to have a license to have sex, uh, at least that form of sex, and mandating certain things like the use of barrier protection. I mean, if you really enforced it, if you actually started putting people in prison for this, I have no doubt unwanted pregnancies would go down. It would work. Maybe they wouldn't go down to zero. They would go, if you really enforced that, they would go down. Would anyone accept that as something the government has the right to do in a free society? I mean, I don't think I would, 
right? And I use that example not to say that I think that is a justifiable and sensible thing to do. It is much more justifiable and much more sensible than compelling women to carry pregnancies to term. Why? Because the cost is far, far lower. The level of constraint that you're putting on someone is much, much lower. Again, like, you know, can you be compelled to go into the pond to save the drowning child? Yeah, I, I kind of feel like you can be. Um, but can you be compelled to run into a burning building? Like, no. <laughs> no. No, you can't. Um, the, the level of constraint being required to put on a condom, it, it feels like, you know, that is a very significant intrusion into this private space, but the action that's, that's being mandated is comparatively tiny compared to, like, all of the costs associated with carrying an unwanted pregnancy. So to the extent that my hypothetical um, sex licensing and enforcement scheme is weird and unjustifiable, forcing people to carry pregnancies they don't want is way less justifiable than that. And this goes to a quick philosophy point I wanted to mention. In that, there is this sort of view, assumption, in a lot of political philosophy discourse, um, that we're living in something like the triumph of liberalism, that everyone is a liberal now, um, that it's the end of history, to quote the title of uh, Francis Fukuyama's book, although people have gone back and said actually the book's a bit more subtle than that, but whatever, that's what it's been remembered for. Um... And I've been really interested in sort of critiquing that idea, essentially, and pointing out that not everyone is a liberal. Our political system is not run by liberals. The, I mean, I think, you know, Brexit and Trump were pretty hard counterexamples to this. But that was seen as like a deviation from an underlying norm. And I don't think the underlying norm has ever been there. Um, liberalism is one part of the justificatory frameworks that were used to create our social and political institutions, but it's only one part. There's many others. Um, and more than that, and, and relevant to this case, people adopt the language of liberalism. I think the language of liberalism has a few functions. I think it's quite a good ideological, like, linger franca. It's like a, a language that everyone can speak at least a little bit, and so we often use it where, as sort of like a second language when we're trying to talk to people from outside of our political group. Um, I think we often use liberalism to sort of make sense of personal decisions, political decisions, and so on. But here's, here's my point. We do so very selectively. We apply a particular liberal principle in one instance and not in others. And I think the 
now how how we do it selectively is incoherent it varies from person to person um and it sort of defies any sort of easy categorization but i do think there are some patterns that we can see and by the way none of these insights are unique to me i'm going to cite some people in a minute but there are some patterns we can see in how we selectively apply liberalism. So take the two instances of potential constraint in order to reduce the number of abortions that I laid out. Um, one is this sort of sex licensing and mandatory condom wearing for men scheme that I just thought up, right? The other is, let's just say, existing regulations on when women can seek abortions, much less um, the, the, the restrictions that um, the pro-life movement is seeking to impose. Well, one of those really sets off our alarm, liberal alarm bells in a way that the other doesn't, even though it's substantively a much more, a much less significant burden. I'll give you another example. We're all quite, uh, we're all quite comfortable using liberalism in defending and articulating what we should be allowed to do, and people sort of in our in-group should be allowed to do. But then, for many, many people, when they see a police officer shooting or killing a black man, suddenly that liberalism is gone, and they revert or just switch over to a very sort of authoritarian framework of analysis. It becomes, why was he resisting? He would be alive if he had followed instructions. That's, that's a profoundly authoritarian way, a profoundly anti-liberal way to evaluate that situation, right? There's nothing about, like, this person having, the, the victim in this case, having rights or anything like that, just jumps over to authoritarianism. And so I think the pattern is clear. It's not the only pattern. It's not universal. It varies quite a lot between individuals. But there is a pattern to be drawn, which is we're comfortable and we instinctively use the liberal framework, the liberal rhetoric when we're discussing how members of historically privileged groups should be treated, so in these cases, men and white people, right? Um, and then we immediately jump over to other frameworks when it comes to how members of historically oppressed groups, in this case, women and black people, should be treated. And again, I'm far from the first one to, to point this out, right? Um, 
And so how should we think about that and how should we sort of respond to that as liberals, right? Because I don't think people are doing this intentionally. I think, by and large, they're not really aware that they're framework jumping, right? Um, in, 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 a, in a similar sense, you know, you get these debates in moral philosophy about, like, is utilitarianism right, or is Kantianism right, or is virtue ethics right? Um, but actually, most people, most of the time, don't invoke moral principles. Um, anything like that, um, they use consequentialism some of the time, or the rhetoric of consequentialism in some cases. It just sort of feels appropriate to use it. And in other cases, they'll use something much more like deontology, at least sort of rhetorically. Um, they're not consciously making the decision, these are the cases for which utilitarianism is appropriate, and these are the cases for which deontology or virtue ethics is appropriate. We just sort of naturally mix and match. That's sort of just how people think, and they don't think about themselves as doing that. And it's no different for political ideologies. We all actually have multiple political ideologies running in our brains at the same time, and in a way that we're almost completely unaware of, and we sort of just bring them out on different occasions, and I don't think that's ever going away, right? That just sort of is how we're built. You can bemoan it, but, like, you might as well appeal the hurricane type of thing. Um, but obviously, in this case, we might think, well, this is, this is pretty important, and um, the, the fact that we use liberalism... <laughs> in a way that is selective and discriminatory in its sort of output, it is probably one, I say one, not the only one, but one of the things that sort of perpetuates structural disadvantage, right? It's a reinforcing element within that structure, right? So what do we do about that? Because I think once you just self-consciously think about liberal principles and apply them out, you, you will sort of see that, it, you know, if it applies in this case, it applies in this other one. Um, and the whole sort of abortion argument I've been making is kind of just that. The arguments I've made about, like, the criminal justice system, police violence and so on are just like, let's just see what liberalism you know, what, what we accept as normative for ourselves. Let's see what it has to say here, you know? Um, but then someone might push back on that and say, look, it is not an accident that we are selective in this way. We're selective in this way because we live in the context of a particular society and a particular sort of process of historical development that has trained us and acclimated us to be selective in this way, that liberalism throughout its history certainly, you know, at its inception, very self-consciously thought of itself as only applying to select groups of people, not with good reason, of course, so the argument, that, that argument you could sort of um, make is like the Charles Mills argument. Um, now, against that I could say, but liberalism has evolved internally a set of tools to break out of um, 
the historically, the, the sort of confined role that it has historically. And you can just see, you can see people like John Stuart Mill thinking their way out of it on questions like women's rights or the rights of people of colour and so on. Just sort of thinking, no, what is actually core to what I'm asserting here? And just applying it in a, in a, in a consistent way. Um, so that's, that's one option of, like, the solution to, what would you call it, like, liberal selectivism. The solution is just more... The, the solution to liberalism's problems is just more liberalism. Right? And to when we're getting someone who's kind of, you know, framework jumped over to authoritarianism or something else, our response to them should just be, no, liberalism, apply this thing in this case. Um, that is sort of what I'm ultimately sympathetic to. But then I think, you know, what Charles Mills would say to that is... Well, look, it's not an accident that liberalism works this way. It's because of its history. And we need to be self-aware of that history and build it into the liberal framework. It's not like we can just apply... We just need to apply the framework in more cases. The framework itself needs to be revised to incorporate an understanding of that history. Um, now, I... Uh, do not think that is an anti-liberal argument, right? I think a lot of people sort of hear that and go, well, these social justice warrior weirdos, they want to just tear down liberalism. That's true for a fringe. But I think for most people, they want liberalism to grow and develop in such a way that it's more self-aware. And I don't think that's an unreasonable proposition. Um, and I'll kind of leave that one up to you. I think you can make arguments both ways there. Because I think even though my instinct is, look, just apply the principles, I think there's a strategic case of like, yeah, but most people don't do that. This isn't how people think most of the time. And, you know, in order to get us to apply the principles, maybe we need to sort of, like, make people aware of the historical contingencies of where those principles came from. Like, you're not going to get people to apply them. You know, for every John Stuart Mill who, for, on a lot of issues, does think his way out of this stuff, there's a million other just regular people who aren't going to make that jump. You know, we are going to have to... So, for instance, Mills suggests, you know, the Rawlsian uh, social contract sort of generated from behind the veil of ignorance. He sort of says, well, you know, here's an example of um, how what, what that sort of building in might look like. Let's tell people behind the veil of ignorance that the society that they will be entering will be one that's significantly shaped by racism. And let's just say they don't know which race they'll be a part of. Um, so sort of this selective ignorance um, that rules sort of has as part of his argument, how would that change the principles of justice that the parties in the original con condition would 
assent to. So that's sort of a mechanism of how you might do it, right? And then you would get like a revised set of principles on the other side of that. And that's an interesting intellectual project. And I am not immune to the force of arguments about how much we are shaped by history and our inability to, to, to think of our, our way out of that. I guess at some level, I am attracted, I'm aesthetically attracted to the philosophical elegance of simply being able to say, just apply the framework consistently. To be able to say to someone, I am not asking you to do anything other in this circumstance than apply what you have already told me you believe. You know, people have rights. Women are people. Ergo, women have rights. I, I am attracted to that elegance. I, I am also willing to admit that it might be a bit otherworldly and a bit um, optimistic. So I don't know. I, I, I put that forward as, I think, an issue that arises from this debate and that I think it's well worth sort of thinking about in a sustained way. So, OK, let's get back to the abortion story. So that is Roe and the justificatory legal and moral logic for Roe. You're looking at laws controlling women's bodily autonomy and imposing very severe restrictions on them that are comparatively recent in American history, and the argument is there are unenumerated rights in the Constitution, as it explicitly tells us. The 14th Amendment, it seems very hard to read other than establishing some sort of public-private divide, and once you have some sort of public-private divide, it seems really hard to avoid the conclusion that reproductive freedom falls within it. And more generally than that, compelling people to carry children um, is just not congruent with the other protections that the Constitution grants the individual against the state, nor is it congruent with how we more generally think about the limits of coercive state power, even to ensure life. That's Roe. Roe is a good thing. It is not a bad legal decision. Okay, so that's Roe. What happens with it? Well, so firstly, um, despite the sort of logic I've run through, Roe does allow for some restrictions on abortion, and it establishes what we, um, I think we're all quite familiar with, is the trimester framework. Um, so Roe, I mean, this is maybe a little judicial activisty, but it just sort of makes up some rules. But then it kind of has to. So I'll just read you from the decision again. Um, it's three parts, each for a trimester. A... Quote, for the first stage, prior to approximately the end of the first trimester, the abortion decision and its effucation must be left to the medical judgment of the pregnant woman's attending physician. End quote. 
Um, so again, this is this woman and a doctor type of language, which I find a bit iffy. But it basically says no restrictions at all on abortion in the first trimester. B. For the stage subsequent to approximately the end of the first trimester, the state, in promoting the interests health of the mother, may, if it chooses, regulate the abortion procedure in ways that are reasonably related to maternal health, end quote. So for the second period, you can have some restrictions, but it's very specific on what those restrictions are. It quite clearly delineates them, and in the opinion, it, go, it sort of maps them out in more depth. It's sort of stuff like, must be you, you could regulate it must be performed in a hospital, as opposed to just someone's room or something, right? But they, ha they those restrictions have to be pertinent to and justifiable in the face of protecting health, in the same way the opinion reasons, like someone having any other operation, the state can put some regulations in around that, but only so far as the regulations are good, common-sense principles to protect health. Third trimester, which is defined as post-viability, Quote, for the stage subsequent to viability, the state in promoting its interest in the potentiality of human life may, if it chooses, regulate and even prescribe abortion, except where it is necessary, inappropriate medical judgment for the preservation of the life or health of the mother. End quote. So, in post-viability, um, you can regulate abortion, except for... Um, where it threatens the life or health of the mother. Now, again, this is arbitrary. And I think from the history, the judges actually went back and forth quite wildly <laughs> on where they were going to draw the line. And they do give some reasons for those lines being drawn. But I think it is always going to be a bit arbitrary. Um, and I that makes sense. That all makes perfect sense to me. Um, you can maybe argue a particular line should be a week more or later. Um, and, you know, in theory, I'm tempted towards a hard line abortion position of it is just acceptable in all circumstances. But I can sort of see the intuitive force of saying, OK, after viability, we're beginning, we're going to be a bit more draconian. Um, you can sort of get into that um but i would view a sort of post viability restriction as a sort of compromise with the other side right um in that like if the child can survive outside of the womb then the level of restraint does become a bit lower because you're not saying can i just stop this whole process and not be a part of it it's sort of like the choice between two difficult and painful and unpleasant procedures. I, I think some hardline pro-choices would just go no all circumstances. I see the force of that view, but I think as a matter of sort of just real-world politics and what will actually fly, I, I, I think this makes sense. I do. Um, now, as I'll get to... That is no longer the law of the land when it comes to abortion. Um, Roe is not the defining legal precedent here. Now, one thing I think it is worth noting in telling this story, and it's sort of a side note, but I think it's important to say, is that abortion had not been a huge political issue up until this point. 
And it wasn't something that necessarily defined, you know, the left-right political spectrum. And it wasn't something that even, like, religious institutions were especially concerned by, although they did, many of them did have teaching against it that went back quite a way. They weren't really politically engaged on that front. Um, and within a fairly short period of time, Roe kind of becomes a defining issue for the conservative legal movement, which is sort of gearing up into existence in this stage. Now, I want to be careful here. There are committed pro-lifers who genuinely believe it and that they're, they're, the importance that they attach to this issue can be taken at face value. I'm not saying there's not, and I'm not calling all of my um, ideological opponents here hypocrites. However, it is important to note that there is a lot of context around Roe becoming a political flashpoint. And the context is, the court for a while now has been doing things that conservatives really don't like. Principally civil rights, right? It's been issuing opinions like Brown or Loving or stuff like that, right? Um, and more generally, we're in a period of quite significant social change with regards to race, with regards to gender roles, to some extent even with regards to sexual orientation, gender identity, and so on. Um, and a lot of people... I'm sort of going to tell the next bit of the story from the conservative point of view, almost. A lot of people feel like their country is being taken away from them, their country is being destroyed, um, and that something quite aggressive and radical is required to combat that. And just like I said, on the sort of philosophic level, I don't think we can sort of talk about abortion as a political philosophy issue without noting how we do tend to apply liberal principles. Not all of us, not all of the time, but it is quite common, let us say that, for people to apply liberal principles quite selectively, and abortion is a case of that. And it is a case that fits into a larger pattern. So just like at the philosophic level, I don't think we can consider the case in isolation from a, a, a larger conversation about how we apply liberalism. At the sort of political history level, I don't think we can consider the reaction against Roe separate from the other sorts of... Um, the other sorts of reactions that were happening to societal change at that time. It's, it's enmeshed with them. And I think there's a lot of different things going on. I think it's different for different people. I think some people, it really is just, you know, they're convinced by the arguments for, for life. I think for 
others, Roe kind of became a sibboleth. It kind of became like a symbol of what is going wrong in the country. Like, that's sort of the name you can put to all of these different social forces that you don't like and are threatening norms that have um, protected you in some ways, right? Um, so I did want to sort of make that point. And it still is used as that, you know. If you read a lot of, like, conservative comment sections, which I do because reasons, um, this is often sort of what you get if you engage with is if you sort of say, well, this position is bad, or you know, well, this thing that Trump did is bad, you'll, you'll quite often get an abortion argument where you didn't anticipate or ask for it. So sort of in response to what you know I might say about Donald Trump, are you kidding? Um, people will say but the Democrats kill babies. There's just no way I could support them or vote for them or whatever, you know. Now, I think there's two things that are going on with that argument, and you want to separate them and then not separate them. The one thing is you can make a coherent moral argument there, and I think this is the argument a lot of the sort of religious right made initially with Trump, um, when they saw him as a Cyrus figure, that was how they labelled him. Cyrus, by the way, um, the Persian emperor who freed the Jews from captivity in Babylon, so the analogy is pretty clear. Trump is someone who is not part of our religious tradition, but has nonetheless saved it or protected it from the barbarians threatening to destroy it. So that's a religious way, essentially, of making a morally consequentialist argument, which is whatever Trump's personal failings, um, the reality of however many abortions a year just sort of overrides that. That's a more important issue. So we'll go with Trump, and you're not really going to talk me out of this by pointing out how grotesque he is, because the lives of the unborn are just weighted much more highly in my moral calculus. That's, that is a coherent argument, right? I think there's something else going on too, which is people are invested emotionally in something that they know they can't really defend, right? They like Trump. They like the bullying. They like the fact that he upsets people from from their ideological outgroup, right? Um, I forget who coined this phrase, but the cruelty is the point. Um, they like this nostalgic vision of, like, a return to a, an America with, with racial hierarchies and so on. And they're invested in all of that because it makes them feel good. And when you call them out on it, they're not interested in substantively defending any of that stuff. You know, bullies aren't... <laughs> 
ever going to, like, sit down and have a formal debate about, like, if what they're doing is morally justifiable. That's, like, not what they're doing, you know? Um, and they wouldn't want to have that debate because they know they can't justify it. And so you reach for something, right? You reach for... Well, why were you picking on the kid on the playground? Well, who are you to talk? Duh, duh, duh. Donald Trump? Really? Yeah, but the Democrats kill babies. Do you see what I'm saying here? It's, it's, it's kind of a deflect. It's kind of a way of justifying it. So there's two ways you can think about it. One is there's a sort of simple, albeit fairly brutal, calculation being made, which is the various unpleasant things that the GOP does to the poor, to racial minorities, to just the general structure of American governance and society are regrettable, but given the way abortion politics align in our country, unavoidable if you care about the unborn. That's, that's one way that people approach it. The other is that those bad things are enjoyable and that the rhetoric of the pro-life position provides a cover in which you can participate in them self-righteously. So, I think, you know, obviously I think a lot of pro-life people would be really unhappy with my my, the second of those characterizations, But like I say, I think it's kind of both, you know? I think both of them, there's real people who match both of those um, descriptions. And then, of course, there's Republicans for whom, you know, this cause is actually not particularly important and they vote Republican anyway. There's actually about 30% of Republicans that are pro-choice, and they're just involved in the party for other reasons. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether that survives Roe being overturned. Um, but so it's big and it's complicated, but those are two... I think that you want to be clear that there are those two different motivations. And like I say, I think they, they might coexist in a lot of people to some degree. People aren't coherent, as I've been saying, throughout this episode, and I'll sort of leave it to you if you look at the broad scope of this debate in, in, in American history, which one you think is, to what extent it's one and to what extent it's the other. But, at any event, with all that context in mind, um, overturning Roe becomes a central cause for the right, at the same time as aggressively, you know, getting justices on the court who agree with their sort of more general philosophy of governance becomes a big part of it. And again, you sort of, you know, what's the horse and what's the, the, the cart here? Is it the, the they're people who were sort of um, locked into... You know, they're, they're just very, very concerned about Roe, and then they become locked into the Republican Party and kind of cynically exploited by them as a result of that? Or is it that a sort of 
post-civil rights Southern strategy creates a new Republican voting coalition for which Roe is a useful sibboleth. Again, a bit of both, maybe? I'm not 100% sure. But at any rate, the, ju- the right-wing judicial project gets going, gets going, gets going. And the essential norm for a long time now has been that there has been a Republican majority on the Supreme Court for, Christ, what, 40 years now? But there's not been a pro-life majority on the Supreme Court. I mentioned earlier Robert Bork. This is something conservatives to this day are furious about, and I think no one on the left has heard of. But he was a very, very conservative... I mean, he was segregationist, essentially, who Reagan had proposed for the court, and whose nomination was eventually defeated in the Senate, for whom we have to thank. Uh, Joe Biden did that one, uh, pretty much. Um... Look up all the history of that. I'm not going to go through it here. And as a result of that failure, they put um, the more moderate Anthony Kennedy on the court. Now, I say moderate. We've got, you know, he was better than Bork would have been. So Kennedy generally upheld the right to an abortion. I think we probably also have him to thank for the Obergefell um, same-sex marriage um, decision. Um, He was also on the wrong side of all sorts of other issues to do with corporate power, to do with money in politics, to blah, 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 blah. So definite, definite mixed bag there. But so it's interesting. For a long time, we've had a Republican majority on the court who will rule in right-wing ways with regards to unions, with regards to um, corporate finance, with regards to voter disenfranchisement with regards to, basically, to to be cynical, all of the stuff that will keep the elite in power, if I just want to be a bit reductive in class analysis about it, if I want to be a class reductionist, but it's not untrue, Um, but not that will overturn Roe. So for quite a while, Kennedy was the swing vote, And he'd give conservatives what they wanted on a lot of stuff, but not on abortion. And this has created a really freaking weird political dynamic in America, because right-wingers, people who are, let's just say, legitimately, truly motivated by the abortion issue, they have been giving their votes to Republicans for a long time to make that happen, and it hasn't even though we've consistently had a conservative majority on the court. So there's always kind of been this, like, debt that is to be repaid, if you're thinking about it from the conservative point of view, element to this. Um, And a sort of, like, we gave you our votes, you got to do what you want, like, where's our payout here element to this. Now, the next big um, case to come is Casey, Casey v. Planned Parenthood. And this is in 1992, so after a long period of Republicans controlling the presidency um, and getting a lot of justices on the court. 
Um, but they're still a bit all over the map. They haven't quite got into the ideological um, lockstep. So there's like Scoot, Scouter, Scooter, however you say that one, who drifted left. Um, you have Anthony Kennedy, who we already mentioned. Um, you have Sandra Day O'Connor, who's a, a Republican appointee, but kind of quite centristy, and I think quite well-regarded to this day, even by people on the left. But given that the, the, this, this is a court pretty stacked by Republican appointees at this point, and they hear this case on challenging Roe on all sorts of fronts, and I think this is where, like, the right gets excited and is like, this, this is it. Um, this is, this is it. It's done. We got it. We got it. We got it. We've been voting as part of this project, uh, this sort of conservative legal project. We've been putting Republican presidents in power and Republican senators for a generation now. This is it. And Casey upholds Roe. Kennedy and O'Connor um, basically say, nope, sticking with it. At least that's the headline story. Because Casey does a few other things. Casey removes the trimester framework and just goes to a viability framework. I'll explain why that's important in a bit. And then changes the pre-viability um, requirements for regulating abortion. So if you remember in Roe, first trimester can't be regulated at all. Second trimester can be regulated for very clearly delineated reasons concerning, like, the safety of the operation, right? There's not much room to colour outside the lines in Roe. Casey removes all of that and says prior to viability, regulations must not create, quote, an undue burden, end quote. Now, if you're wondering what an undue burden is, you are not alone. <laughs> it was never defined. And if you look at what the courts have and haven't decided is an undue burden, they're all over the map, and there's not a coherent principle, I think, that you could stitch them all together. But this is, this is an important thing, because since 1992, Roe has not been the law of the land. Casey has. Casey's been the operative Supreme Court precedent. You can think of it as maybe a modification of Roe. Um, and I think it was presented at the time as upholding Roe, but changing some of the details. But actually, it did a few things. For one thing, it allowed restrictions on abortion in the first trimester. It got rid of that framework. And for another, it made the legal standard under which restrictions were assessed much less clear. What's an undue burden? Well, really, the only way is to find out by passing a law, pushing it through the courts, and seeing if the Supreme Court woke up on the side of the bed where they thought it was or wasn't an undue burden. And that's been the political reality of abortion for really the past generation in America. 
that's the mechanic that's been playing out. You have this very vague standard, and so Texas or Mississippi or whatever will go, what about... What about if we said women have to get their husband's permission to have an abortion? That's not an undue burden. Just got to, you know, just got to check in with, with your husband. Someone challenges that in court. It works its way up the court. Supreme Court's like, um, yeah, that's an undue burden. Women don't have to ask their husband's permission. Oh, okay, okay. Let's go back to the drawing board. What about... What about if children have to get their parents' permission. What about that? Goes all the way up the courts. Supreme Court's like, nope, that's not an undue burden. Children do have to get their parents' permission. Like I say, any sort of coherent principle behind this, you're lost to find, right? What about if there has to be a 24-hour waiting period? Courts have gone back and forth on that one. What about... Ooh, what about... What about, let's get, let's get technical, what about if the doctor has to have admitting privileges at the hospital where the abortion is performed? Not an undue burden. And this is why, where I think, like, like I started with the, 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 um, the, the, the boy who cried wolf thing comes in for the left, is we're seeing all of these cases going up the court and decisions coming down and nothing actually seems to change that much. There's never just an overturn row. Um, but what sort of happens is they don't stop abortion, but they, in a lot of states, put a lot of stuff in to make it really freaking inconvenient and really humiliating. I think that's the side of it, and which is why I always want to emphasize this other side of the abortion debate. In the, Like I've been saying, yes, of course there are principled pro-lifers, but there is also this other side of it, which is about shaming women. Women, there's just a, a thing, I think, for many people that women deciding for themselves who they want to have sex with and sort of when and why just made them see red, <laughs> you know? And there's a lot of these bills are stuff like you have to see an ultrasound picture, you have to have a invasive and medically unnecessary, um, like, vaginal canal, um, sort of procedure before you start. Um, and a new one that just popped up, you have to bury the fetal remains and sign a death certificate just as much as you, like you can. And of course, because you have this undue burden standard, the question isn't being asked, is this a justifiable regulation to like, ensure that the procedure is safe? The um, question that's being asked is, is this an undue burden? And even taking that standard at face value, you can kind of see by themselves, none of these sort of restrictions are an undue burden. But then you sort of add them all up. And I think that's sort of what we've been seeing drip by drip by drip, just sort of slowly, a slow erosion of row, like sometimes accelerating, disproportionately located obviously in Republican states. It's also, Casey is a power grab by the judiciary. I think that's an underappreciated element of Casey. 
Um, because there's this big narrative around abortion, right, of, like, the courts... Let me just give you the narrative in a general sense. Um, the narrative is that this, this isn't really something that belongs in the courts, but the courts are increasingly taking up a lot of issues because Congress is unable to. So there's been a sort of long-running debate for a while in America about, on the one hand, people are saying you shouldn't be fired for being gay or transgender, and on the other hand, many people are saying, but we want to fire people for being gay and transgender. And that's um, essentially now been thrashed out by a bipartisan majority on the Supreme Court to say you can't fire people for being gay, but religious institutions get pretty significant ability to opt out of that. So that's the Bostock decision and a few others. You can disagree with that. I think it gives institutions with a religious mission a bit too much ability to opt out. I, I would endorse something like the ministerial exemption, but I think they draw it way too broadly. But whatever, that's a sort of resolution to those issues. You'd normally expect that to be thrashed out by a legislator, no, not the courts. Well, our legislator is chronically unable to govern, and so the courts kind of have to. Because at least the virtue of a court is you get a yes-no decision, <laughs> right? Um, Congress, this stuff just grinds on for decades. And the, the, the quote that's always used to sum this narrative up is like, power abhors a vacuum. And so the courts are sort of filling that vacuum. Um, and all of these decisions about, like... Should the doctor performing the abortion have admitting privileges? That's sort of the context, by the way, of why if a lot of this stuff seems petty, it's because it's being forced through that framework, the undue burden framework. Well, that should be handled by legislators, but courts are taking it up because they have to. I think that narrative, while true in many respects, especially with regards to Congress, I think that goes too easy on the courts. Yes, power abhors a vacuum, but power also seeks to expand itself. Power will, will override weaker centres of power. And you can this argument like, oh, abortion shouldn't be in the courts, we shouldn't, all these minor details that we're endlessly relitigating them, we, no, it's, it's, we're having all of these cases... And we're constantly really litigating these details because Casey superseded the very clear standards that were laid out in Roe with an incredibly vague one. Under Roe, you already know in advance whether something's constitutional or not because there's, there's nothing in the first trimester, these A, B, C, D, E, F in the second, and then the third, anything apart from life or health of the mother being endangered. Casey, anything's on the field. So the court aggregated to itself, which it's been doing for all of American history since Miles Bruce and Madison, the power to just sort of arbitrarily decide which abortion rate 
regulations it likes and which ones it doesn't. And like I say, th these decisions do not have any internal coherence. They, they might as well. <laughs> might as well be uh, just really whatever side of the bed the judges woke up on that day. So it, Casey is one, it's ensuring that this is always a live issue in the courts, which sort of has a strategic function for the Republican Party, because there's always some bill they can whip their supporters up and fundraise around and, like, continue to make this a motivating issue. They can always keep it alive for their constituents, because Casey ensures there's always some controversy to be resolved. And it's also a power grab by the judiciary. So it's also them saying, OK, we had settled law, now we're going to unsettle it so that we're, we're perpetually in the driving seat of this. So Casey, I mean, I guess it's good insofar as it upholds the, you know, you can't block abortion pre-viability, but then it introduces a lot of, like, weirdness into the abortion debate. And that's sort of the state of affairs running up to the 2016 election. And in the 2016 election, we go into that election with an open seat on the court. Now, Hillary Clinton was right to say, Roe is on the line, and we will probably get Roe overturned or substantially limited because of... Um, the results of that election. She was right. People disbelieved her at the time. Again, the sort of crying wolf thing. This thing, had, like, we'd been sort of warning about this for a long time, and it never came. So I think that was just a, you know... I think in, on liberals thought Trump could never win. Leftists, when you said, Roe is on the line, would say, don't you vote shame me. Um, but Roe actually was on the line. But it wasn't on the line because of the open seat. Um, the the one that was artificially kept open, they wouldn't even consider Merrick Garland, that whole drama, because that seat was to replace Scalia, so it was to swap out a Conservative for another Conservative. That would have still left Anthony Kennedy as the pivotal vote, and he was always going to be somewhat pro-choice, albeit within this weird post-Casey framework. Now, Filling, if that seat, if, if, you know, in another universe, if there'd have been a few more million Democratic votes in 2016, Hillary had won, and let's just say, taken the Senate, because I think the Senate was quite close, it was only about 51, it was, it was only a 51-49 majority when Trump came to power, 52, I forget. Um, so a couple more Senate seats, the presidency, we can then get... For the first time in generations, a Democratic majority on the court who can start hacking away at crap like Citizens United and will probably, I suspect, start over time and gradually, but start to shift abortion law more towards the Roe framework than the Casey framework. So we lost a lot by losing 2016. None of the, just within the realm of the courts, never mind other bad things Trump might have done. A lot of really, like, good pathways forward 
were closed when we lost the ability to, to win that seat. But that in and of itself doesn't give you Roe being overturned. Then Anthony Kennedy retires. And the circumstances of, of like, why he retired have always been a bit, like, disputed, and there's various sorts of theories and maybe even quasi-conspiracy theories around that. I'm not going to get into that, but he does retire. So now you can switch out the key seat on this. This is why the Kavanaugh hearings just reached the level of acrimony that they did. I mean, I'm not even going to get into the, the um, Bassie Ford allegations. I'm not going to relitigate that. I think everyone has made up their mind on those one way or the other. Um, but that was the stakes. Um, there's so many, like, 5-4 decisions on abortion where Kennedy sides with the Liberals, and now we can switch him out. And so the whole Kavanaugh drama happens. The Kavanaugh is eventually um, put on the court, albeit the key senator to, to, to um, vote for him, Susan Collins, did so on the assurance that he respected precedent enough not to overturn Roe. Um, and precedent is an argument here, right? Like... I think judges, even conservative ones, kind of don't like the idea that the law just changes every time a new justice gets put on. There wants to be some sort of consistency. And so there's a sort of vague assurance there from Kavanaugh. Um, and obviously now conservative groups are like, oh, let's test this. Let's test this. Let's write every abortion ban we can think of and just start sending them up through the court system and see what's going to fly. And that's essentially the process that's playing out in the latter half of um, the, the Trump presidency, because it, it can take, like, years for these things to, to work their way up the court. Um, and now's about the time to start getting a bit nervous, if, if you're on the, the pro-choice side. Because it seems like they finally turned a Republican majority that will support Republicans on a lot of things, but a pro-choice, a pro-life, sorry, minority on the court into a pro-life majority, albeit a narrow one, a 5-4 one. Then you get June Medical. And I bet you, you've probably not even heard of this one. This one drove conservatives up the wall with rage. This was just like, if you look at it from their point of view, it's been like they've been promised this thing for so long. They voted for it for so long. We've had a Republican majority for 40 years, and it's like, yeah, but frickin' Anthony Kennedy, man. Um, Kennedy's finally gone. We've got... Actually, the... the June medical case is quite narrow. It's one of these, like, hospital admitting cases, privileges, ones. And we've got a pro-life majority who struck down the law, upheld Roe. 
And I, the, the, the reaction from conservatives, I think, was just like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, if you try and see it from their point of view, June Medical is, the vote, is in the tail end of the Trump presidency. Um, are you fucking kidding me with this shit? Well, what happened? We had the vote. Roberts, John Roberts, Chief Justice, who in prior cases had made rulings that would seem to indicate he would strike down this law. No, sorry, he would uphold this law. He would allow these sorts of restrictions. Um, reversed. He sided with the four liberals of the court, leaving um, uh, uh, Thomas to write a dissent in which I think he channeled the feelings of many conservatives being like, translating from the legalese, are you effing kidding me? Um, why? Why did Robert switch? I'll give you the legal reason, and then I'll give you what I think is actually happening there. The legal reason is precedent. Like, guys, and there's a few cases like this. June Medical's the one who's most known, where he's like, guys, the court just ruled on this. I personally thought that ruling was wrong, but you can't just come back to us with the same question and hope for a do-over. Right? I think there's a few cases like this. I think this is sort of what I interpret Roberts as saying. Like, chill out, relax, we have the power now, we have the majority, and our justices are quite young, by the way, they're not going anywhere. Just chill. We'll keep working away at this from within the Casey framework, within just, you know, continually, just whatever we feel like undue burden means today, right? That's... I think, like, what Roberts was saying. Essentially to like the conservatives, like, chill. But in the age of Trump, conservatives don't have much chill about them. But the legalese was sort of precedent. I think the strategic was, let's, let's not move too fast here. So Roberts is seen by conservatives as... I mean, some, at times, like, essentially a traitor, like someone who's always undermining them. That's not true. Like, statistically, he's a very reliable conservative vote. I think the thing with Roberts is he doesn't like to make a splash. He do, he'll make very, very conservative rulings when there's not a lot of cameras on them. I think he's really adverse to making rulings that will undermine the, the legitimacy of the court. So he'll side with the liberals when he thinks the Republicans are sort of going too far and putting themselves in an exposed position. So he provided the vote to the liberals to uphold Obamacare, but then took, gutted a certain amount of it and set up the framework in which it can slowly be rolled back, which is sort of what we've seen happen. And I think, you know, if the legal reason is precedent, I think the actual reason is something a bit more like that, of like, you know, we'll slowly roll back abortion, but let's not do it in a way that really, like, blows up or gives ammunition to the other side. I, that's how I read Roberts there. He's just sort of a, as a more careful, long-run strategist. A 
and of course Roberts, for a brief period at the end of the Trump presidency, is arguably the most powerful man in America. Why? Um, because he's the swing vote on the Supreme Court. There's him, four other pretty ideologically rigid conservatives, and four liberals. So he's the swing vote, and as Chief Justice, um, the Chief Justice, if they're in the majority, gets to decide who writes the opinion. So he can both decide the cases and decide who he wants to write them, which means he can sort of decide, is this going to be a narrow ruling or a broad ruling? What sort of precedent is it going to establish? And given, obviously, with divided government and Trump in power, like, Congress certainly isn't doing shit during this period. For a short time, John Roberts was arguably the most powerful man in America. Um, and... His approach is a sort of move softly and slowly with really hot-button issues. With everything else, we're going to move quickly and conservatively, like Voting Rights Act got the shit out of that, right? But, like, that just wasn't the same level of intensity of feeling as I think an overturn of Roe would have been. And that looks like that's going to be our status quo, precarious to be sure but not, not, not like apocalyptic, maybe. And then Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies. <laughs> and again, I can sort of feel liberals always being like, you're always telling me we're just on the brink of this thing collapsing and it never does, and then Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies. And there's another absolutely explosive drama, but you know, in complete violation of everything they said around the time of Merrick Garland. Amy Coney Barrett gets put on the court. You've now got a 6-3 court, and most importantly, you've got a 6-3 court in which you don't need John Roberts' vote. So John Roberts, even though he's the Chief Justice and a Republican, was made considerably less powerful once Coney Barrett got on the court. Because now they, you know, he was the pivotal vote, now he's not. So, down, that's the court. Now, of course, once that happens, what's the conservative movement going to do? You, you, you'll know the pattern by now. Let's send every case we can up the ladder and see what sticks. Now, for the first term of this new court, I think they were reasonably cautious in what they took on and what they didn't. By the way, rule you need to know to understand what's happening, to grant cert, that is for the court to decide that they want to take up a case, takes four justices. Five, assuming all are voting, is required for the final decision, but four to take on the case. Right? Now, they've just recently taken on a case that limits abortion to 15 weeks, so well into the middle of the second trimester, well prior to viability, with the question... So the court not only decides what cases it's taking, but the questions that it will settle by doing so. 
right? So it not only makes a ruling, you know, in this case, this law's unconstitutional, it provides a reason for that so that lower courts can have a framework in which they can decide other rulings. So for a long time, it's been Casey stroke June medical, right? Like, let's just say the Casey, I think broadly the Casey framework's what's been operative. Now, here's what's interesting about that, is a lot of the challenges that, that we've seen that have sort of worked to roll back abortion rights have done so within the Casey undue standard, undue burden framework, right? They're trying to argue, look, this thing, it kind of restricts abortion a bit, but it's not an undue burden. That's been the line of argumentation. This isn't that. You know, Casey says, prior to viability, you can only restrict abortion if it's not an undue burden. This is now saying, okay, direct challenge to it. Now, with Casey as the operative principle, that law is flatly unconstitutional, right? Any lower court would find that it's unconstitutional because they're following the Casey precedent. There is no circuit split on this. So, sorry, circuit split. Ordinarily, the types of cases the Supreme Court will take are when one set of courts has found that a thing is constitutional and another set has found that it isn't. And the Supreme Court will take a case with a view to resolving that and creating a sort of universal established rule that everyone can use. Usually the court won't take a case that every single circuit is agreed upon the, the law is unconstitutional. And it did here. So, so what does that mean? Um, what I would interpret that to mean, and I think what most people are interpreting it to mean, is that there are at least four votes on the current court. Might be more than four, and we don't know who they are. That's another fun thing about the Supreme Court. We know it takes four. We don't, we don't know the four. Um, there are at least four votes for either striking down or significantly revising the Roe Casey framework. In other words, not just playing around the edges of what is, an, is not an undue burden, but pushing back the, the time period um, with, within which you can have it at all. Right, there's definitely four because I don't, I don't think any of the liberals are voting to give cert on that case. I think their response would be, well, no, it's obviously unconstitutional under the um, Casey framework, so there's no need for us to take it up. We'll just deny cert, which will mean the lower court judgment will stand. Liberals aren't voting for it. The only reason you take this case up is if you wanted to do a ruling that reverses or significantly diminishes Roe stroke Casey. And there are at least four votes to do that. Who? We don't know, but we can speculate. So Thomas is definitely one, right? Thomas is definitely one because he's been the most vocal about the fact that he thinks this is all just bad law, doesn't agree with it. 
the others, you know, justices tend to play their cards very close to their chest on this issue, and um, they don't give away sort of what they're thinking if they don't have to, right? But most of the commentators I've read or listened to on this um, think Alito and uh, Gorsuch are also votes. And then the fourth is probably Barrett. That's sort of the scenario most people have pieced together. Now, none of the three Liberals are voting to strike down Roe. And so that leaves Kavanaugh and Roberts as your swing votes, and you only need one of them. So you're beginning to see now why I'm leaning towards Wolf rather than crying Wolf for this. Kavanaugh will probably be the deciding vote on this. But then is Roberts going to side with the Liberals even though it won't stop the ruling coming down? Because if he sides with the Conservatives, he can decide who writes the opinion. If he sides with the Liberals, it goes to the most senior member of those voting for the winning side, which will be frickin' Thomas. Um, so that'll be interesting. So, so what's going to happen here? Let's ask the big question. Is a total overturn of Roe possible? Yeah, yeah, I think, I think so. I don't think it's the most likely outcome, but I think it's possible. They just go... Roe was bad law, we're overturning it. States can regulate whatever they want. Maybe with like a life and health of the mother exception. Done. Back to the states. Possible. What happens then? Well, as a matter of law, any state can then regulate it however they want. So whether or not you can have access to an abortion will be determined by whether you live in Alabama or New York. Will you be able to travel to get one? That'll be an interesting um, if this, if that is how it goes, whether those sorts, if a travel restriction would be upheld as constitutional under God knows the interstate commerce clause or something, um, you'll also have a political earthquake in America, like, like this will significantly realign our politics. Um, we won't know for about a year, by the way. This case is expected to come down about a year, so just before the midterm elections, who knows how much of that'll factor into people's thinking. Um, what happens to the pro-life votes that have been locked into the Republican Party for a while now? Do they stop caring about federal elections because now this is all going to be decided by the states? What about the 30% of the Republican electorate that's pro-choice? Are they now votes that are up for grabs, or do they find another way to rationalise it? Will there be significant protests? Will you see violent protest? I have no idea. Like, like we will be walking into a new political world, if that's what they do. I think for that reason, they probably won't do that. And... But that's a... That's a political rationale, not, not a legal one. There is nothing stopping them here from striking down Roe. They can do it. And there are 
there are at least a few votes on the court who are inclined to do it. Thomas certainly wants to do it. Um, I find it interesting that the case they took, because there's a load that they could have took, is at 15 weeks. So is that suggestive of the fact that they're sort of thinking about that as the new threshold point? That we're going to come down from you know, 24, 22 weeks to 15, and they're going to find some sort of legal legal rationale for doing that. That might be the most likely outcome, I think. Um, so a significant rolling back of abortion rights, but not like a total ban. That might be what they're thinking here. I mean, again, it depends. There was four votes for cert, or, or was there five? Because if there's five, have they already decided what they're going to do with this? Or are there four hardcore ones, and they need to sell a potential fifth? Because if they need to sell a potential fifth, then that person will essentially decide what the scope of this is. So it could be there's a range of outcomes here. It could be like, we uphold the Mississippi law, they can block it after 15 weeks, but it's quite narrow and it doesn't apply to a lot of other cases. You could imagine something like that. You can imagine just a straightforward scaling back of KC from 24 weeks to 15. Um, you can imagine, I mean, they could go further. They could do it to like 10 weeks or something. Um... I don't know. There's that range of outcomes. I think that has the most political logic to it. I think what they want to do is give the pro-life base a win, give them their payout for sticking with Trump, but not do so much that you create a massive counter-reaction on the other side that's going to be politically harmful to you. I think the political calculus of this is you want to try and find some way to thread that needle to try and, like, give a win to your base who have been, like, waiting for two generations and going apoplectic with some of the recent decisions. But, like, try and do it in such a way as you don't antagonise the other side. And a lot of countries around the world do sort of have, like, 15 weeks is something a lot of European countries have, so I think the line will be from a lot of conservatives... Like, we're just bringing our abortion law into line with what it is in a lot of the rest of the world. Look, it's not too bad. Calm down. Don't go anywhere. You know, pro-life Republicans, it's all fine. Oh, and by the way, sorry, pro-choice Republicans, don't go anywhere, it's all fine. Oh, and by the way, pro-life Republicans, keep voting for us because we need to, like, challenge this more and we need to get new laws passed in the states and, you know, let's get the final 15 weeks gone. This kind of, like, saying two completely different things that the Rep modern Republican parties sort of got... I wouldn't say they've got good at it. We've just all accepted that they do it and that that's a thing. Um, I think that's where the political logic goes so a significant rollback but not a total one but that does not mean it's impossible for just fully striking down but that could happen um i'm just sort of thinking like if i were them and i had the incentives they do how would i play it and i think i'd do that or i mean let's just say that it loses so let's just how how would that happen like i 
In other words, they just uphold the Roe Casey framework and they strike down this 15-week law. How would that work? Well, let's just say that it's Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and um, Barrett are the four who granted cert. And let's just say that they're fairly gung-ho about at least 15 weeks, if not a total, total abortion ban. They don't have the Liberals, obviously. They don't have Roberts. It's just a bridge too far for him. He doesn't want something that's going to be as politically explosive as this. So it comes down to Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh doesn't want to be the deciding vote on an issue that primarily affects women, given the controversies of how he came into office. He maybe actually does respect precedent, like he said, and it's just, you know, he he sides with the Liberals on the basis of precedent. Yeah, I mean, this could happen. This could happen. Um, But I sort of feel like it's like drawing to, like, an inside straight, in that you need both Roberts and one other. So you'd need Barrett or Kavanaugh or someone like that, and, like, yeah, it could happen. But then what happens if that happens is there's a political explosion on the other side in that the, the, the now, now is the time, right? We've stuck with you for so long. We've understood that we need to switch out Anthony Kennedy. We did. Okay, we understand that John Roberts is, like, being cautious, we did. We got another seat. And then they still don't do it? I think at some point the Republican Party will, will worry. They have to give them something, I think is the calculus. Um, now, the Supreme Court justices have lifetime tenure. They're not constrained by anything. But... So they could. There's nothing stopping them ruling that way. They could. I would probably say that's less likely, though. Um, you're probably looking at somewhere between a significant rollback and a total elimination of Rowan Casey. That's probably where we're at. And there's probably not much to be done about it. I mean... The Supreme Court does pay attention to public opinion. Big protests and activism around this, I think, will happen. And that, that might make a difference. Um, but there's not... The only thing we could do to prevent this, I think, would be court packing. And I don't really see how that happens. Um, maybe there's an opportunity, maybe like Thomas dies or something, and we can switch out a Republican justice. At the moment, we're hard, having a hard enough time to switch out our own bloody justices. Um, talking about Breyer there. Um, but the moment at which we really could have done something about this has passed, and it wasn't the 2020 election, it was the 2016 election. Like... It wasn't clear at the time, but in retrospect, I think the fate of abortion rights in America really will have been decided by 2016. 
it wasn't obvious that that would be the case, but it was a distinct possibility, and that possibility happened. Um, like, like with so much of American politics, the solution is we shouldn't have lost 2016. That's it. 